Welcome to 20th Century Geek. Welcome back to 20th Century Geek. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly, and this week we'll be visiting a country manor, a sophisticated dinner party, or maybe even the Orient Express. I talked to Caroline Crampton, host and creator of the podcast She Done It, about the golden age of detective fiction. We discuss the authors, the characters and the tropes that are all still alive in modern detective fiction. So don your tweed and twirl your moustache as we try to deduce who done it. Violets from tiny seeds fight their way up through the weeds. Violets can do it, why can't you? Little brooklets breaking free work their way down to the sea. Little brooks can do Caroline, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for coming on, uh, on board. Uh, Thanks very much for having me. Giving the time. That's okay. And uh, do you want to just introduce yourself and uh, uh, who you are and what you do, and uh, and then and why I've pu- uh, pulled you onto Twentieth Century Geek? Right. So I am a journalist and a podcaster. I make a few different shows for other people, but the main thing that I do for myself is a podcast all about early 20th century detective fiction called She Done It. Um, so I think that's probably why you've asked me on here today. It is indeed. It's a fantastic podcast and it's uh, it's really intrigued me and got me sort of digging into uh, that era. Um, I suppose the first question is sort of how did you come across it and what, what was your interest in or when did your interest in this era sort of uh, begin? I think it was when I was in my early teens actually. I remember going on holiday with my parents and, you know, staying in like a B&B or something that had a, you know how they do just like a shelf of random books that other guests have mm. left there and whatever. And it had um, a collection of Agatha Christie short stories that's called The Tuesday Night Club, or sometimes you find it under its American title, The 13 Problems. And it's a, it's actually the first appearance of Miss Marple. And it's short stories and in each one a group of characters has you know they're meeting for dinner at different occasions over a course of several years and in each one somebody tells the story of a crime or suspected crime that they witnessed that they know what the outcome was but they're asking the rest of the group to try and be the hypothetical detective and and guess and of course it's no spoiler to say Miss Marple, the fluffy little old lady hmm. in the corner, everyone forgets about, she gets it right every time. And I thought this book was amazing. And so, of course, when we got home from holiday, I sought out plenty of other Agatha Christie's and that led me on to other authors from the same time. And I'm basically still doing the same thing. That's fantastic. And that's, that's I, I love that sort of... I, Stories like that are really, um, like you know, they're like the secret origins of people's uh, hobbies and passions. Really, I find them fascinating because it's uh, um, so many times it is that sort of thing of like, oh, I was on holiday or I just bumped into, I found this and sort of I unearthed this. And I just think that's so exciting that you find something you can be passionate about in like a a B and B or a second hand shop or something like that. It's also from what I've found from talking to other people who are fans of these kinds of books as well it's not the 13 problems isn't a very normal place to start you know if I was recommending Agatha Christie to someone who'd never read any for instance Mm. I would probably pick one they will have heard of like Murder on the Orient Express or Death on the Nile you know they've been big famous films recent adaptations etc um I wouldn't necessarily recommend a moderately obscure short story collection (laughs) um but it worked for me and actually maybe it is a good starting point because they are short stories each one is a self-contained thing so I was reading like a couple each evening before I went to bed they're bite-sized and they do have a character that you've heard of in them in Miss Marple but this the plots are clever and all in retrospect you know because somebody's telling this story around the dinner table and I just actually maybe that is a really good place to start and it's possibly, you know, I didn't have to read a whole novel in order to get a flavour of what this was about, you know? Yeah, so it was like a little tapas of... Basically, uh, of, yeah. 
Yeah, <laughs> a literary tapas. I, I, I think I think short stories are a great way of, of, of doing it. I think, uh, you know, I think I've known others that have done it with other sort of authors, like Stephen King or Clive Barker, and those sort of things where people have picked up the short stories and you can pick and choose the ones you like, and it's a, uh, it, it, it just sends you down the rabbit hole to the bigger and uh, probably the more sort of uh, in-depth works. Yeah, and they're a really popular form for detective writers in sort of 20s, 30s, 40s mostly because there were a zillion magazines that commissioned people to write this stuff. You know, the whole idea of serialising stuff in periodicals, certainly in Britain Mm. and I think in America as well, was still a really big thing. Um, So some of Agatha Christie's novels, that we now know as novels even, I think originally appeared in sort of edited excerpts like that and then appeared as a book afterwards um so but yeah there's you know whatever author you're into whether it's christy or dorothy l sayers or anyone else there's loads of short stories out there oh well that, that's that's really interesting because i think that's that is of the the period sort of um you know like you say those stories being split up and published week on week or month on month or whatever was really popular at that time and i sort of um obviously that's how you know sherlock holmes was published and yeah <clears throat> as you say the uh, the american pulps and um uh magazines of the period especially during the depression era sort of like early to mid 30s um yeah it was it's really interesting because i i got into some stuff you know recently like the john carter books by edgar rice burroughs and not knowing they were editorialized to be a ser- or serialized um when you read them, it's like such a series of cliffhangers. It felt so sort of overly dramatic, and when you realise that, you think, "Oh, okay, that makes that makes more sense now." Uh, so yeah, it's good to sort of you know see how those things sort of developed in that in that period. Um, but the question is, well, how how did this this golden age? I mean, I should really sort of clarify, but the golden age of detective fiction, sort of uh, from my research, I did seems to be between nineteen twenty and nineteen forty. So sort of the intervening war years. Um, how did that sort of come about? Why is it referred to as the golden age of detective fiction? Well, there's a sort of few different factors that all come together, I suppose. Um, I think it's like a lot of these periods that have labels. I don't think it it was really called that necessarily at the time. I think mm. towards the end of that period, people started referring to it as that, but it wasn't like in 1932, Agatha Christie would be like, well, I'll just crank out another golden age novel, <laughs> you know? So it's not something those authors would have said about themselves. Um, but there was certainly a huge like, proliferation and flowering of what some people call cosy mysteries or you might also refer to them as country house mysteries or sort of classic English detective stories. And partly they were incredibly popular, I think. A lot of people mm. wanted to read them and therefore lots of publishers wanted to publish them. And so lots of people tried to write them. There's that sort of cycle, you know. Mm. Um, and a lot of talented writers emerged all within a short period of each other, um, which then sort of fed that slight sense of like it being a movement. Um also just the publishing context itself you know we've talked a bit about serialization but that was you know magazine readerships were massive um so magazines had lots of money to spend on commissioning short stories and so on um and also books were becoming affordable you know those uh tri-band penguins the three colored mm. penguins were sort of coming in i think they started in the early 30s as this yes. idea of like a portable pocket cheap book you could read on a train or on a bus or on the way somewhere um and actually agatha christie's mysterious affair at styles was one of the first 10 of those those books um and other publishers did similar things something called the collins crime club um by the publisher now known as harper collins then known as william Mm. collins that launched in 1930 and published i think all they were Agatha Christie's publisher from her sixth novel onwards, I think, um, and published lots of other sort of golden age authors. So there were all these different factors, all I think kind of interlinking. Um, something else I've also heard people say is that, you know, that period is roughly between the First and Second World War. And there's this idea that the world, but maybe Britain particularly, was sort of coming out of this huge international trauma and people just wanted to settle down and have a bit of fun and enjoy the kind of simple pleasures and recover so there's um 
there's a critic called Alison Light who I think in the in the 80s it was she sort of posited this idea of detective fiction as convalescent literature so it's something you might read when you're getting over something you're getting better mm. from an illness or recovering from a breakdown or something because it's pretty easy to read that you know it's not sort of complicated syntactically or anything no. the plots are satisfying in that they come to a definite resolution there's no complicated allegory or anything that you might sort of mm. trip up on and yeah you'll just you'll finish the book and you'll feel better you'll feel like the world is ordered and there's a pattern to things and it's not all sort of random meaningless slaughter um <laughs> and so she's sort of put this idea on it that, that part of the popularity can be attributed to that idea um and of course where there's popularity there's there's more supply you know people write more yes. and more of the books yeah. so that's roughly my idea of of why it came together when it did it, and it's interesting you say that because that's sort of it's sort of sprung out to me because um i'm a, i'm a big fan of uh, like the american pulps mm-hmm. and having read a lot of those and they sort of came around came out about the same period so you sort of get those uh fantastical serials of the sort of the, the teens into the early 20s um and it sort of grows from that thing and it's sort of it's it's interesting to see the divergence between british culture and american culture that is say we we look for uh there's a gentleness to these and an order um that sort of seems in, incredibly british uh whilst the american pulps you you end up with characters like the shadow and the spider and doc savage who are um it's it's all about the adventure and it's a it's a, they're a very physical outlet and it's sort of about fighting crime and it's it's uh, especially during the depression era they sort of they become a representation of people's frustration and wanting to fight back and again we like you say it's sort of people's reactions to those between the war years seems to have, does seem to bubble up in the pop culture so it's interesting to see that comparison um, mm. between the two yeah I think that's absolutely right they're both sort of related but slightly different responses to roughly the same thing you know and in america you've got prohibition and the depression as well sort of factoring into that desire for escapism um Mm. and so on and there's a an interesting and persistent idea about the english detective fiction from this period which is that it's very cozy and it's very charming and it's very twee which i personally think is wrong and I don't really know where it came from um, because A, these books are all about murder, you know they don't yeah, yeah. dwell hugely on the details of like cracked skulls and pools of blood but it is there um, so I don't really see how you can characterise anything that's about violent crime as being cosy but <laughs> people do and then there's also this idea that they're nostalgic and I personally think that what people are thinking about then is maybe tv adaptations that they've seen mm. as opposed to the books themselves because some of the books are to varying degrees sort of quite radical and subversive some of the authors were very concerned at different times with ideas of sort of natural justice as opposed to state justice if you know what i mean so um mm-hmm. i don't I want to give away the ending of any books but you know ki- sort of plots where the detective is put in a position where there's the right thing to do and the legal thing to do if you know what i mean Mm. and he has to make that decision for himself yeah or where a miscarriage of justice an innocent person is very nearly uh you know convicted for a crime done by somebody else and the novelist is exploring how that might come about and how that might be solved so i wouldn't characterize any of those things as cozy as it were no, because there's definitely an element of morality and uh, you know, some complex philosophy in some of these that I think it does deal with some of those. And they, I suppose they would have been relatively contemporary as well at the time. Mm. Um, like I say, because you watch a, a you know you watch a Poirot um, adaptation or a Miss Marple adaptation now, and it is it would be considered a sort of a, a Sunday evening, um, you know, mystery sort of uh, entertainment. But as you say, sort of written in the period, it would have been about the period, so it sort of it, it probably wouldn't have been in seen in the similar in that same way. Yeah, definitely, it is. Yeah, it, it's important to remember that we're reading something that is period to us mm. that wasn't period at the time. I mean, you do get 
strangely stretched timelines in some of these books you know like Hercule Poirot is supposed to be elderly and retired when you first meet him in the first book in 1920 Hmm. um and then the last Hercule Poirot book was published in 1976 I think um you know so he's about 130 who knows yeah um you know so that kind of thing slightly stretches the realms of belief no i have to admit i did that confused me a little um recently sort of i picked as a bit i say i picked up the um uh, the abc murders and i watched the recent uh, adaptation of a christmas and in that i was oh this is really interesting it seems to be like you know it it depicts him as a sort of an aging detective he sort of passed his prime and all this other stuff but then when I tried to pick up, so I, was like, I wonder what the timeline is. Where does all these other things sort of fit in? You know, as you said, the uh, murder on the Orient Express or the murder on the Nile. Where do they fit in? And when it said like he retired or he sort of came into came to uh, Britain in, in 1920, I, I took that sentence. But then it said he was a former police officer and he had like an entire life. But I was, I was, I was like, wow, he, that's a very long life to, yeah, uh, to it, fit it all in. It is completely improbable because, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. Although. Yeah, the first book with him in, and indeed Agatha Christie's first book was published in 1920. She wrote it in about 1917-18, I think, and it was set in 1916. And Poirot is in England because he's a refugee, he's a Belgian refugee from the First World War, and he happens to be living in this particular village with a load of other refugees because this rich lady does charity work and part of her charity work is helping to resettle refugees and that's why he's there and then the rich lady gets murdered so he investigates and that's the plot of the first book mm. um and then later christie wrote this collection of short stories called poirot's early cases which is like a flashback to some of his cases back when he was a working police officer and they're sort of set in like the 1890s <laughs> as would make total sense if he's retired in 1916 mm. Uh, but then, yeah, he, he just slightly agelessly continues without but, much declining in ability for about yeah. another five decades. <laughs> but I think that's also that's also the joy of you know literary and, and sort of fictional characters. You can just enjoy them timelessly, and and you know um, they just keep going. And I think that's sort of you know, or at least they have an expanded lifespan and an expanded adventure adventure career. You can enjoy them. Uh, beyond um, you know, any normal sort of hmm. a, a, an aging actor, that's what I think. That's why I like books so much in that period because you can just keep going and going. You, you know, there are so many sort of book series that just keep going, and you th- you're a bit like, after a while, you just give up. You just sort of go live somewhere quiet, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, Poirot does try that a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, for instance, the murder of Roger Ackroyd, which is one of Christie's sort of most critically acclaimed books, which. Think was her fifth one so it comes out like 1926 something like that um poirot has moved to the country to grow vegetable marrows which is a slight parody of the sherlock holmes keeping bees mm. thing um and you know it's not his fault that a murder happens next door or whatever you know um so there are a few recurring times like that where yeah he does he does attempt to retire and i suppose that's possibly Christie slightly making fun of the fact that she's created this deathless character um, yeah. what is interesting though is that unlike Arthur Conan Doyle who came to really hate Sherlock Holmes and he actually did kill him once and then mm. brought him back I think partly for the money um, Christie I think she sort of said a few times later on in her life that she didn't love writing Hercule Poirot stories but by you know by the time she was on to the into double digits you know but um the public loved him and she felt that she must write what her public wanted she was quite content that she was there to write what people wanted to read as it were Mm. um which i think is actually quite nice i think it's it's quite a common trope with authors isn't it that they sort of hate their successful things and they want it's like a band you know oh i don't want to play the hits i want you to listen to my new concept album Um, whereas actually Christie was like no i'm very happy to play the hits for you um no yeah i can imagine it being one of those things like an author that's probably got a brand new book out and it's like say it's probably some sort of um you know real in-depth sort of like proper novel literary that have been trying to write for years and someone comes up and puts the pulp book they've written 20 years before in front of them and that's that's the thing that everyone wants signed i'm sure mm-hmm. it's a uh, uh, you've talked about Ag- agatha christie a lot and um you've mentioned a couple of other names one of the things that 
uh, through your podcast as well and, and just just the research is I there's an awful lot of uh, female authors uh, mm-hmm. writing writing these books and sort of um, I was I wasn't sure you know especially pre-war uh, especially pre-first world war that doesn't seem common so it seems like this this era sort of is, is a boom period for uh, female authors yeah I think that's definitely true um, <clears throat> I don't have a completely sort of proven theory as to why this is but one of my ideas about it is that detective fiction I think today and then in the same way wasn't ever seen as like proper literature it's not Mm. the kind of literary fiction that's going to win the Booker Prize or the Nobel Prize for Literature or whatever it's seen as a bit of fun there's a huge amount of skill involved in it but it's not it's not like being James Joyce or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I think as a result, people didn't have so much of a problem with seeing women authors doing that. Um, you know, serious literary enterprise probably at the time was considered really a male thing. Um, you only have to look at someone like Virginia Woolf to see how much she struggled um, yeah. against sort of sexism and misogyny and perceptions that women couldn't write serious literary art and so on. Whereas I'm not sure that Agatha Christie or Dorothy L. Sayers or Margaret Cole or any of those people really had such perceptions against them because, yeah, nobody really thought it was like a, a sort of proper serious thing to do anyway. A lot of uh, men who did it, who also wrote what you might think of more highbrow stuff, used pen names in order to... Um, dissociate the two so a good example of that is um, Cecil Day-Lewis uncle I believe of Daniel Day-Lewis and Mm. a Hmm. British poet laureate he wrote detective fiction um, as Nicholas Blake and it was popular and people enjoyed it but he you know he just he just kept the two things separate because he didn't want necessarily the critics who were praising his poetry to know that he also enjoyed writing whodunits that, that, that's fascinating actually because it's it's interesting to see that uh, I, I almost thought it'd be the other way around I, I find that fascinating because you, you hear other sort of genres where there are you know female authors um whose writings are incredibly popular but they're encouraged to instead of having the full name you know as a agatha christie they'd mm. be sort of a christie or you know the the, the published sort of push to make it sort of a bit more um, androgynous as it could be. Any, you know, there's, there's no gender to it to sort of hide that fact. Um, and so for, to, to, it's almost, it's, it's, you know, it's a celebration so that actually they were sort of. I'm trying to be careful. Say that they were left to their own devices. They were allowed to do this. Um, yeah, and I think also there was definitely, it feels to me anyway, at this the time these books were coming out, they were just so fantastically popular that you couldn't argue with it. Mm. So maybe a publisher might have had initial doubts about publishing a book by some woman he'd never heard of. But after he'd seen the sales figures for the first one, he'd be like, when can you write the second, third and fourth? Um, yeah. So it was, for instance, Agatha Christie had an interesting experience with publishers where her first publisher, I don't think that she had an agent or if she did, it wasn't a very good one because um, her first I think four or five books she didn't really make a huge amount of money from them um so she obviously signed a bad contract or bad for the author and then after the murder of Roger Ackroyd came out and was really a breakthrough hit for her she got an agent she moved publisher and after that she had a much better sort of setup where she was properly you know piling up money from these books Mm. but despite the fact that she wasn't making huge sums from it, the publisher was obviously very keen because they published (laughs) five of them. So, yeah, I think it just worked. Um, But lots of um, uh, authors, detective authors from this period, experimented with pseudonyms. Um, It doesn't necessarily seem to have had anything to do with gender. So um, Anthony Barclay, for instance, whose full name was Anthony Barclay Cox, he published some books with all three of his names, some books just as Anthony Barclay, and some as Francis Illis, just completely randomly. (laughs) Um, And it doesn't seem to have harmed him at all. One thing I've not yet been able to work out, because it's quite a hard thing to research, is did people know 
that mm. that was just him under another name or was it genuinely people thought they were reading a new and different author um but he i think reserved the francis illis name for slightly darker and sort of a little bit more sexy stuff whereas okay. his anthony barclay stuff was more country house drawing room type things i think but um yeah so everybody was experimenting with different pseudonyms the Coles are a good example of this as well where um gdh cole quite a famous like socialist historian and sort of early labor party activist uh he and his wife wrote detective novels together um which were all just published as gdh and margaret cole so they just had a joint byline on all their books Um, and i think i read somewhere that they wrote them alternately so one of them would write the first draft of one and the other one would edit and then they do it the other way around the next time but they all just went out under the the two of their names wow teamwork yeah well it's it's an interesting one i would have thought they would be because they were both involved in serious politics and um and so on i would have thought they would be a prime example of people who'd want to have pseudonyms Mm. but they never did Mm. yeah it it is interesting how sort of people choose to either you know say you know uh, be presented out there or keep it back and i think it sometimes i think it depends on the genre as well i think you find it more in sort of science fiction and horror that people will uh use pseudonyms and and sort of mm. you know like you say try especially if they've done other things other ventures where they're trying to disassociate themselves from certain as you say darker uh stories or elements um but i mean the, the you, you know you refer to these as sort of like the cottage uh the cottage house sort of murders or the drawing room things they they seem to have or well having sort of minimal experience from really sort of there seems to be a structure there seems to be sort of certain rules that you have to follow um and as actually, I sort of again there was a, there's a a Robert Knox, no, Ronald Knox, yes, uh, uh, wrote ten. There were ten. He wrote his ten rules for detective uh, fiction, um, and it sort of seems to be. No, it was just, I just sort of used them as a as a guide when sort of running through some of these stories, and it was interesting to see that actually, you know, some of these rules you could easily apply to to a lot of you know, the things that happen today. It's sort of things, for example, uh, one. The criminal must be someone mentioned in the early part of the story. Uh, all supernatural or preternatural agencies are ruled out as a matter of course. Uh, not more than one secret room or passage is allowable. No hitherto undiscovered poisons may be used. Um, number five is a little interesting. Uh, no Chinaman must figure in the story. I'm not sure how that one ages. Uh, no That's accident. an interesting one, actually. So you finish reading it and then I'll talk about it. Uh, uh, no accident must ever help the detective. Uh, the detective must not himself commit the crime. Uh, the detective must not light on any clues which are not instantly produced or ins- uh, for in- the inspection of the reader. Um, the stupid friend of the detective, the Watson, uh, must not conceal any thoughts which pass through his mind. His intelligence must be slightly but very slightly below that of the average reader. Well, wow. uh, Number 10, twin brothers and doubles generally uh, must not appear unless we have duly prepared for them. So it's sort of his ten rules there. Yeah, there's and there's a few different people published similar rules. Mm. Um, and all of this stems from two things. One, there was a, a strong sense that you had, if you were going to do detective fiction, you had to operate within a sense of fair play. Um, that sort of old-fashioned idea of, you know, you must, you must play cricket, that kind of thing. And so a lot of those are aimed at that. So like that idea that the criminal must be mentioned early in the story. Mm. You can't just in the last chapter go like, oh, right, it was this guy who we've never seen before, yeah. but he did it. You know, <laughs> you have to be fair on the reader and give them a sporting chance of being able to work it out for themselves. Ditto sharing clues and that kind of thing. Um, and And then the other thing that sort of informs that is... And this is apparently something that started during the First World War and then really took off after was people were just obsessed with puzzles. Like crosswords were became mm. tremendously popular during this time as well. And um, treasure hunts were a big deal. And just generally people were into, for fun, games that involved you sort of pitting your wits against the setter or the creator. And so detective fiction sits in that area, I think. And that's why people got worked up about the rules but the important thing to know is that the authors used to break these rules all the time (laughs) and 
Some of the books that are the most popular are the ones that just flagrantly flout these conventions. So I mentioned The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, which was Agatha Christie's really sort of big breakthrough novel in about 1926-27. That one, I'm not going to say how, because I don't want to ruin it for any of your listeners who haven't read it. Um, That one just completely breaks at least half of those rules, I'd say. (laughs) Um, and there's lots of other examples of that as well um, the thing about the Chinaman is interesting um, and I, I'm i not too much of an expert on the sort of American pulp stuff but I think possibly this is slightly informed by that and slightly informed by the kind of Victorian penny dreadful type stuff as well that essentially it's a bit like you know the more contemporary pop culture stereotype of like the the sort of magical black person mm-hmm. um essentially what Knox was saying was that you can't just have like somebody mysterious from the orient turn up and solve everything because of his magic powers um that stereotype is rubbish and we're not doing it anymore so that's what he was saying he wasn't saying no chinese people because we hate them yeah. he was saying we don't like this racist stereotype it's bad for the novels let's not have it um, that's the background to that. Oh, actually, so, so, so despite the fact that it, it's written in a... Um, it's, it's there for interpretation, I suppose, in, unfortunately, in the way it's written. But we actually, it's actually a progressive... I think I think it is. That's generally how it's sort of read by critics, that mm. he's obviously still using the offensive language of the day, but he's pointing out the fact that the kind of, you know penny shocker story you might get in a low brow magazine in london in the sort of 1900s and 1910s where people disappear off into the opium dens dens of limehouse and then a magical chinaman saves the day or something um that that has no place in proper detective fiction yeah well, that, you, you say about the uh you know how this played out in the american pulp it, it's it's really prevalent in that of um some of the later stuff especially from the 30s you sort of that thing of the the mysterious Orient was, um, for example, the shadow. Uh, you know, he was whoever you may be, Lamont, Cranston, Lamont Cranston or uh, whoever he was. He disappears in the Orient for five years, and he comes back, and he has these mystical powers that, that mm-hmm. allows him to do these things. And the same, you know, there were other characters that all do the same, and it was it was it was a real trope of we can't think of how to give them the powers, so it's magic that they've picked up from some mysterious part of the world. Uh, so I completely understand that. And it's sort of quite, um, it's quite refreshing to see that actually we were working to try and sort of, you know, um, move away from that yeah. and, and keep to a, a sort of, a, as you say, the detective and the puzzling rather than the, the mysticism and the supernatural. Which is not to say, of course, that the detective fiction of this time was sort of amazingly progressive in all ways. <laughs> it definitely wasn't. There's loads of examples where, even what you would otherwise think of as, you know, friendly and enlightened characters say things like, ah, this person has been poisoned. I bet it was a woman. Women do poisoning, <laughs> you know. And lots of instances of like offensive language about people of other races and, you know. And yeah, I think as a sort of critical 21st century reader, you have to read those things in the context of their time and make up your own mind about them. Um, but on that particular point, I think in a literary sense, at least, they yeah they were sort of trying to move away from that like deus ex machina type of plot and rather Mm. have have the author sort of show their workings because i think what you want in a really good detective story from this period is you want to feel like you could have worked it out but you didn't um yeah yeah i I was just thinking from what you said earlier i like that idea of actually if you were really good at this you the clues are all there for you you know you are learning along with the with the um the primary detective so you could you know you you or you at least you feel like you could figure it out uh you know and be satisfied with yourself that you you could guess it or you could or at least think you could figure mm. it out and a lot of the way in which the books were presented feeds into that as well so um i am also quite into collecting books so i buy a lot of secondhand books online and mm. in shops and stuff and i recently bought an edition of The Mysterious Affair at Styles, which is Agatha Christie's first book, which is from about 1950, I think. And unlike more modern editions that I've seen, it's got it's got a map in the front, like a map of the house showing where, you know, the woman who died, which was her bedroom and where all the other characters were sleeping. And then all the way through, at one point, Hercule Poirot finds 
a small fragment of paper in a fireplace where someone's tried to burn a document but there's a you know crucial bit that's left unburned that he finds and there's just a drawing of what the fragment looks like in between two paragraphs so there's a sense that she's giving you all the clues and therefore you should be able to work it out at the same pace as the detective in the story that's fantastic so so really you are reading cluedo yeah i suppose (laughs) but that sounds really good and that's sort of i can imagine that being really you know um really appealing as as a reader especially sort of like you say in the 50s the sort of when they had those, those book clubs and stuff and they would do that that sounds like a really nice addition as well um those sort of things always make make a book a little bit more interesting. You know, you are involved and you are engaged in the story, and you sort of feel part of it. Um, yeah, I do like finds like that. So, was that in a second hand bookshop you found that? It was actually I online. I think I found it on eBay. I just sort of mm. periodically search for titles in different places to see if there are any interesting. Also, because I quite like books with different covers. Like, if I've got more than one of a book, I just like to see how. It, you know the cover treatment has been done very differently because some detective novel covers especially from sort of the 60s 70s and 80s are completely bizarre i think yes. at the time in a in an attempt to make what was fast becoming quite an old-fashioned style of book to make it seem sort of modern and hip publishers would have really weird photo shoots and stuff <laughs> for these books so i always find them amusing uh, no, I'm 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 guilty of very much the same. It, it's uh, it's I've got let's say it's a similar with all the other many other genres as well. I think the sixties and seventies. There's some of the covers, um, are, are just are just magnificent. There's some I collect a series of sort of uh, short story uh, horror novels uh, collections from Pan and stuff like that. And the painted covers are exquisite. They're so so good. Um, and they don't really get mentioned. You can never find the, the the name of the artist is never kept in the book. Like you never know who's painted these amazing covers. But um, yeah, so I, I'm the same as you. I I will pick up these regularly. Pick up a number of books and then have to explain why they're sort of uh, my library area is getting deeper and deeper in books that uh, I, I'm probably never going to read, but are fantastic to look at. But just to have, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, you said about the rules and stuff. And there's one. There was one thing that I I, I was curious about. Um, you, you know, sort of the influences on the future. Um, and the way those sort of have been played out again and again because they become tropes and um, we've said you know there's obviously been the direct or, or loose adaptations of a lot of these uh, stories especially with Poirot and, and Miss Marple and those sorts of characters and Father Brown has, has had a series um, but there's obviously also like modern um, these rules, or you know, for the most part, and, and this sort of structure seems to have been interpreted uh, with more modern contemporary characters as well, hasn't it? So the ones that sort of sprung to mind straight away was sort of Jonathan Creek uh, mm-hmm. and Mur- and Murder She Wrote, oddly enough. Um, yeah, and the Grantchester novels, um, which are all quite recent, and there's also a series on ITV of that as well, um, which is set in the fifties, but you know, mm. the novels are still being written by somebody now. Um, yeah, so I think it's just. As you say, it's a lot of this stuff has just become embedded as a trope in popular culture. And so people both enjoy just writing within those rules. But I think also these days more than ever, people enjoy messing with the rules and breaking them because they can rely on that certain level of knowledge in the viewer or the reader. Um, they don't have to necessarily explain it. So a really good example of this is a book that came out last year, which has been winning all sorts of prizes, which is called The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle um, by a guy called Stuart Turton. And um, I've interviewed him for something when the book came out, and he's a massive Agatha Christie fan. But what he's written is like a kind of sci-fi detective novel mashup. Um, okay. The way the publisher pitched it to me and others was it's sort of like Gosford Park meets Inception. Um, wow. So it's like, well, it is a country house who done it, but with a time travel element and a sort of Groundhog Day aspect to it. I don't think it's giving away too much to say if, if I say that the the amateur sleuth who's trying to solve the crime, he experiences the same day over and over again. The the day of the crime, he keeps waking up back in the morning and having to do it all over again, as it were. Um, well, you've, you've, you've just sold a copy. That sounds really cool. <laughs> I I thought it was really interesting, and that it, it does exactly what you say. Like it relies on 
existing knowledge of these tropes in order to bend them and twist them into something new. Mm. And I do like that. I love when that's done. Like you say, you take the tropes and you do something slightly different with them. And you, so you can still feel comfortable in the sort of um, that general uh, pocket of what you enjoy. But then someone, like I said, there's a twist on it or something. Mm. There was one though, uh, and again, I'm, I'm, I mean, um, I'm not sure your thoughts on this, but I'm, I'm a big horror fan, and, and it's sort of, um, and we're also talking about sort of names and, and titles of books that have changed. There's there's a book from Agatha Christie, uh, 1939, and then there were none, which has obviously mm. been known by by other other titles, um, and this had a, a TV adaptation a couple of years ago now, um, and it's one of those books I saw. I have a copy, I haven't read it yet, but. I have read the, the thing and I sort of know the sort of the gist of it. And really, coming from 1939, as I sort of worked this forward, this is a proto-slasher. Like, it is, yeah. You know, it's an isolated location. It's people being uh, killed off uh, in rela- you know, for a for a specific purpose and in, in inventive ways. Uh, with and it's a, really with gory under- as well. It is, yeah. And I, I, I was just really surprised to sort of... Um, you know, like you, like you, as you said about sort of this idea of this nostalgic, gentle um, detective fiction, and then there's this book, which you know is is actually sort of the the category of horror for this wasn't invented really until the late sixties, early seventies. Um, it, it's I just find that really fascinating that this, and, you know, I'm sure I mean, someone a lot more intelligent than I has probably come up with the, the whole sort of like history of this thing. But it, I, I just find it really fascinating that that sat there as this sort of like, oh, look at me. I'm actually a, uh, before Michael Myers, before Psycho, before these other things, there was, and then there were none. Um, yeah, well, um, not to plug my own show, but the um, Sarah Phelps, who's the screenwriter, who's done a lot of uh, new Agatha Christie adaptations for the BBC, and she did that, and then there were none one. I interviewed mm. her on the show when her latest one came out um, at Christmas, and she talked a lot about this and said how, because she wasn't a detective fiction reader at all before she kind of got the job of doing these adaptations, and but she had all of the preconceived notions about them being gentle and twee and stuff. And she said, and then she read, and then there were none. She was like, fucking hell. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is, as you say, like incredibly violent. And she said also, she thinks the way that Christie messes with the perspective of the narrator in the book. She's like, it's basically a modernist novel. Mm. Um, you know, take away preconceived assumptions about genre and certain genres being more prized than others. And you'd absolutely put this on a par with like Mrs. Dalloway or something in terms of the way that um, the reader is kind of led through the story and misled through the story. Um, yeah, so Christie did she did experiment she did kind of color outside the lines a bit because there's and then there were none which is i think i don't know how you would verify this stat but you see it repeated everywhere that it's it sold more copies than basically everything ever apart from shakespeare and the bible or something like oh, it's really? ludicrous like millions and millions of copies all over the world <laughs> it's enormously popular uh but then she has other novels that went out under you know the agatha christie name that similarly they don't have any of her recurring character detective characters in them and they are you might consider them more like thrillers um mm. or even hedge, edging over into horror um sometimes she plays about with espionage um as well uh there are the the tommy and tuppence novels that start with secret adversary they're ver- very strongly influenced by kind of spy thrillers but then there's ones like endless night which is I I'd call it like a psychological horror novel really. It's oh. it's all about a marriage and it's about, you know, a woman being driven mad by you know, she's married this man and then they've moved to this remote house and she's slowly going mad as a result and there's a like a spooky old lady who keeps scaring so her with like ghost a, stuff, you know. So like a turn of the screw. Yeah, know, very of... much so. Um, and then the other thing as well that I think is maybe less well known even now is Agatha Christie also wrote kind of romance novels under a different name um, as Mary Westmacott, uh, which also have some pretty dark stuff in them, but mostly more domestic and not so sort of supernaturally inclined. Um, but yeah, so she did write a lot more that wasn't just Miss Marple Investigates, mm. you know. 
it, I think this is like you know this whole sort of uh, this whole sort of uh, genre and sort of um, literary sort of like period is fascinating. I think there's so much to sort of dig into, and there's so many different authors, and so many. And even like I say, even just following uh, Agatha Christie, you find that she's obviously done so much, and she has so many different tastes that she was sort of flexing her muscles in different ways. Um, it really, I mean, it, it, it excites me to go off and read these books, uh, and you know, like I say, try them out and. Uh, see if I can guess who did it mm. <laughs> um, but I suppose the question is we, we mentioned it before really. you said yourself you sort of started with um, you know the, the book found in the in the B&B but if someone was to ask you how, what books where should I start with you know uh, this this golden age of fiction what what couple would you recommend so I think with Agatha Christie you want to start either with a short story collection so something like the th- the thirteen problems slash the Tuesday Night Club, it's you can find it under both titles, is is a good start. Or um, if you're you know reading around Christmas, there's a short story collection that starts with one called um, Hercule Poirot's Christmas, um, which is good fun and allows you to try out lots of different things. And then if you fancy sort of moving beyond just Christie which I would strongly advise people to do you know I do think Agatha Christie was a great writer but there were lots of other really good writers working at this time as well and you can Uh read really widely so there's a a writer I really like called Gladys Mitchell who was working around the same time slightly later and her detective character is called Mrs Bradley and she is not like Miss Marple at all, shall we say. She is also an elderly lady, but not the same. Uh, and her first appearance is in a novel called Speedy Death, which I think is a really good place to start with Gladys Mitchell. And then another name I've mentioned a couple of times on this without explaining is Dorothy L. Sayers, who, again, was writing around the same time as Christie. Her detective was Lord Peter Whimsey. There have been several TV and radio adaptations featuring him, so people might have come across him. He wears a monocle and he's very posh. Um, and I'd say a good place to start. It's not the first one with him in, but I think it's a good starting point, is the one called Strong Poison. Excellent. It's, I'm glad I'm recording all these, because I wouldn't have to write them down now, but I can write them down Well, I mean, there's tons more. There's a, a really great um, New Zealand writer from this time called Nio Marsh um, and I really love her books I don't necessarily think she's such a great plotter but mm-hmm. I love them for just the fact that she's writing in New Zealand at this time and I mm. learn loads about what the place is about and stuff um, and yeah I'm just at the moment myself getting really into the Coles so I'm reading Death of a Millionaire um, which is by GDH and Margaret Cole and really enjoying it so I mean, there is, as I said, this stuff was hugely popular and as a result there are hundreds mm-hmm. and hundreds of these books. And also what's really nice is that it seems to be, I think partly thanks to, you know, modern TV adaptations and also just the internet making it easier to research these things, it is it's growing in popularity. More people are getting involved in it. And there's stuff like um, the British Library in the last few years have been republishing out-of-print detective novels. They've got a, an imprint called British Library Crime Classics where, um, you know, writers that I've never even heard of, there are books coming out with that that it's always interesting to pick up and take a look at. So, essentially, once you've got the bug, you can spend a fortune and the rest of your life yeah. reading this stuff. <laughs> <Is> it? <laughs> but it's all there, and that's what I say, it's fantastic. It's, it's you know, it's, and if you do get the bug for it, if it is a passion, it's it's a real area that you can dig into and learn a lot about and, and mm. really enjoy the different sort of ways of doing it. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 a great area to sort of learn more about. It's, I find it fascinating because, again, it's that sort of the, between the wars as well. I, I like the idea of sort of uh, the British response to that sort of period of, of um, you know, you get the sort of, P.G. Woodhouse kind of stuff as well, so you, you know, they're trying to let loose, but we've still got a very British idea of sort of order and, um, you know, doing the right thing. And I think it's, mm. it's, it's uh, I've really enjoyed sort of researching this. There's a fabulous non-fiction book, actually, I would recommend to anyone who's interested in this, that um, uh, is called The Golden Age of Murder. And it's essentially like a, a history of these two decades and the writers who were working in them and the part that I really enjoy as well is like the real life cases murders Mm. and stuff that were happening that they were reading about in the papers and then sort of incorporating either directly or like atmospherically into their 
their books that's by martin edwards um the golden age of murder and that's it's just a great fun read and yeah i learned loads from that book oh, i definitely look into that brilliant thank you thank you very much for your time caroline it's been fantastic thank you for having um me. Nice. So just before we wrap up, um, please sort of uh, give promote your podcast again. Uh, where can people find it, and um, anything else you're doing as well? Right. So it's called She Done It, as in Who Done It, but she. Uh, and you can find it at shedoneitshow.com or in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the usual places. And yeah, I've got a new episode coming out very shortly. Actually, just about what we've been talking about: the rules, um, all about the origin of these sort of uh, you know well why can't i have a secret passage all that kind of discussion so yeah if anyone's interested come and have a listen excellent definitely go check it out it's a fascinating podcast with some really insightful things that i've learned i learned about quite a lot uh, surplus women mm. uh i like said the sort of the uh dining i loved a lot i really enjoyed that one about the food uh so it was really good so i definitely recommend it um but thank you very much for spending the time again i, I really appreciate you coming on thanks Tom. There we have it, my fellow armchair detectives. An insightful look at the period known as the golden age of detective fiction. Some awesome stories and characters were created during this period and will last for decades to come in both their original form and, I assume, many adaptations. Let me know your thoughts on these authors and their works. Do you have a favourite? Get in touch by email at 20thCenturyGeek at gmail.com or Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, all using 20th Century Geek. I'd love to hear from you. Also, don't forget that 20th Century Geek has got a Patreon page. I'd love to say that I'm a mild-mannered podcaster making a fortune as an amateur detective. Unfortunately, it's not the case. So any donations made are hugely appreciated, and all get funnelled into making this possible. If you'd like to show your appreciation for the podcast, tell your friends about it, or leave a rating or review on iTunes because it helps the show be more visible and we can spread the geek love to new listeners. Until next time, keep detecting. (laughs) 